0: Before we get started, a quick disclosure. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Nothing here is an offer or a solicitation to buy or sell any investment. With that, hello and welcome to the Range to Capital Podcast. This is a 15-minute long podcast and the clock starts now. I'm Andrew Walker, a portfolio manager at Rangeley. With me as always is my co-host and Rangeley's founder, Chris DeMuth. It is Wednesday, June 8th, and today we're going to talk about two sectors that couldn't be more diametrically opposed. First, we're going to start about talk, start by talking about the wave of mergers in the cloud computing space, and then we're going to go and move on to a uh, much more kind of boring space, but one that I think Chris in particular has a lot more familiarity with, a some big mergers in the utility space. Uh, so Chris... You want to start with the cloud merger space? Sure. Yeah. I was just
1: thinking about how many things I love that are <laughs> colloquially thought to be boring by people who don't know how interesting they can be. But uh, for something that is thought to be more uh, interesting, uh, let's start with clouds.
0: Yeah, so let's start with uh, cloud uh, cloud computing. There have been three big cloud acquisitions in the past week. Uh, Salesforce bought Demandware for mm-hmm. all, just under $3 billion. Uh, PE firm Toma Bravo bought Kulik for about $3 billion. And PE firm Vista Equity bought Marketo for about $1.8 billion. And uh, I think there was some good intel that said... They actually outbid Microsoft for them. Also, uh, Oracle made two kind of smallish bolt-on acquisitions in the space last month, and we're kind of on pace to have a record year for software and cloud computing acquisition. So uh, why don't you start by talking about kind of what's driving this wave of uh, mergers?
1: Well, when targets are unhappy with an offer, if it's unsolicited or if they're kind of balking, they, they, one of the insults they like to throw around is, that was an opportunistic offer. Yeah. And, and being a capitalist, I'm not quite sure what to do with that insult. like... Am I supposed to make an offer at the peak just out of generosity? It seems like that's what buyers are supposed to do—is to be opportunistic. It's very
0: stock. funny, you know. Like a company stock, let's just take a number, is trading at ten dollars on the on the stock exchange, and. A company, somebody comes in and offers to buy them for 15 and the company says, that's an opportunistic offer. Well, was everyone who was buying the stock for $10 the other day, was that opportunistic? Was there something wrong with that? What were sellers thinking? Like, kind of what's going on with all of that?
1: I think what it means is that management and board members feel some right to a reasonable premium on top of the highest stock price they recall. And they rather suspect it's your responsibility to make them whole on that. Uh, But uh, in any event, this was a volatile sector. So from a buyer's perspective, it certainly uh, offered opportunity. Uh, The Nasdaq fell uh, from uh, 15% or so from January to mid-Feb. And the, the cloud index Plunged by more than a third.
0: Yep, yep. So, uh, you know, when when markets are volatile, kind of higher multiple stocks tend to fall further, and cloud cloud computing stocks tend to be higher multiple stocks. So their stocks came way down, and that kind of presents opportunity for buyers to step in and say, hey. Now your prices look attractive, and we can kind of see an acc- a way to an accretive deal with your stock price at a lower, uh, lower price. Go ahead. I,
1: I have to say that for most investors and serious investors, it's not that helpful to think about volatility too much in terms of your wealth. It's much more useful to think in terms of… Of earnings of cash flow of book value that's what you actually own and if you think about it in those terms it wasn't nearly as bad for uh, the sector and in fact the uh, the economics are not only pretty good but they're fairly analyzable from a private equity perspective.
0: Yep I, I think that's one of the big things that's happening here uh, d- the stock prices came down and demand for cloud computing spaces remain high yeah. and kind of big strategic companies like a Microsoft or an Oracle look at these companies and say hey if we buy these smaller, faster-growing companies, we've got a great balance sheet, our growth is slowing, we'll boost our growth, and we can actually boost their growth by kind of plugging them into all of our stuff. And for a private equity firm, cloud computing is very sticky, you have great recurring revenue streams, and private equity companies are saying, hey, it's sticky, so we get pricing power, we get really good visibility into the future, we can put a lot of debt on this company and kind of make a lot of money if this goes right.
1: And for most investors, they shouldn't just be thinking about the day-to-day market price bouncing around. Think like a private equity firm or strategic buyer. When those bids come in, that was the right answer for all intents and purposes. Uh, And then back into if you kind of owned it thinking it was twice that, you were probably a little high. If you were uh, out or short it or weren't sized and never thought it was worth anything, then it's kind of in both directions. Uh, a bit of a, a truth teller in terms of what rational people with financing showed up who had inside information and said it was worth. It's pretty much as close as you're going to get to the truth of value.
0: And that's something I kind of want to dive into a little bit. I think when you look at these companies and, you know, cloud computing companies, even despite the volatility, still kind of trade for 5x five revenue and they're getting taken out for 7 to 8x revenue. And traditional value investors look at these companies and say, those are ridiculous multiples. These are completely overvalued. People are going to end up crying, which maybe in the end they will. But uh, I think you've got a lot of evidence here that uh, there is value to be had in these companies. You, know, you have serious, sophisticated buyers, both on the strategic and private equity side, who are coming in and offering big revenue multiples to buy these companies. And uh, there's a reason they're doing that. And I think you kind of doubt these deals at your own peril. And I've got an example or you can go ahead and jump in.
1: I just want to give a quick reaction to what you said, which is I, as a value investor, it's sort of part of my identity that I look sort of a at a company like Salesforce, which I've never owned. But I don't think that's really what value investing is supposed to be. I think there's a lot of data empirically here that says this is a more valuable sector, even if it's not one that I would uh, be drawn to owning.
0: Well, you know, I think a lot of value investors love software companies, the True. old software companies like a Microsoft selling Windows, because they were insanely profitable and they had huge moats. Well, if you really think about a cloud computing company, all they've done is they they've take, you pay $100 for Windows up front, And they change it to you pay $33 per year. Mm -hmm. And that lowers your... That kind of increases your revenue multiple. But if you think of the stickiness of that business... It's actually a much more profitable, consistent business. So, uh, but anyway, I think you doubt these deals at your own peril. And I'll give one example: Salesforce. Uh, in I believe 2013, they bought Exact Target for 2.5 billion dollars, about 8x sales, which is very similar to what they're buying Demandware for. And at the time, people really mocked them for this deal. They said it was way too expensive. And in hindsight, actually, they probably got a great deal. Their stocks doubled, and one of the big drivers of their stock doubling has been exact target, let them get into the marketing slash advertising cloud space. Go ahead.
1: I I was going to say, I think that my uh, worst, and this was kind of more of a mouth bet than anything else, uh, in dollar terms of something I've been long skeptical of probably was Salesforce. I think in percentage terms, it was uh, the company that makes Uggs. I think when I first (laughs) saw that, that, I thought it was just a preposterous fad, and that was I think hundreds or thousands of percentage points ago. Thank goodness I didn't put any money on that. But for what it is worth, those are the two that I just didn't see. Yeah, Salesforce I
0: believe Salesforce and uh, Google actually went public around the sales time and Salesforce's stock has actually beat Google's stock yeah. over the past but uh, anyway, I think it's worth questioning, you know, this is a uh, podcast for investors. Uh, we've gone over the strategic rationale here. Do you see any opportunity in the space currently?
1: Uh, Infoblox is one that uh, I own uh, Mm -hmm. that I think has a lot of the pieces that I look for uh, in something too.
0: Yeah, so Infoblox, uh, I think one of the things that brought it to our attention is one of our favorite activists, Starbird, who we've mentioned several times Mm -hmm. in the past month. Is involved there. They own about 7% of the company. And right after Starboard bought their stake, it came out that Tama Bravo, the same private equity firm that's buying Kulik, uh, had approached Infoblox about a buyout. Uh, shares kind of went from $16 at the time to their kind of price $19, 19 right now. But uh, I still think they do represent a reasonable value. They're trading at about 2.5 times revenue. So if you think you know most cloud computing companies are trading at 5x and getting bought out for 7x, there's room for a huge premium in there. Uh, there's reason to think maybe they shouldn't be worth that much, but still a lot of room for premium. The size is right. They're about a billion-dollar market cap company, so they could make sense for either a strategic buyer or a private equity buyer. And you can kind of see the rationale for either. Uh, a strategic buyer could look at InfoBlocks and say, hey, they're a leader in network services. They have a lot of Fortune 1000 companies, but they're really weak in smaller companies. We can help them strengthen up in smaller companies and use them to increase our relationship with Fortune 1000 companies. Private equity firm can look at them and say, hey, their recent performance has been bad. Margins are below margins are below peers. Revenue growth has fallen off a cliff. We can buy this as a turnaround and make a lot of money if we turn it around. And uh, even without that, the company has a really nice balance sheet and is buying back shares. So maybe even without a buyout, they'll do well. Go ahead.
1: Maybe qualitatively it gets a little ding from some of the multiples we've seen in other deals. But... I don't think there's anything qualitatively that makes it substantially different.
0: You know, sometimes you look at these and you say, like, oh, this trades at 2.5x, but everything else trades at 5x. There must be something wrong with it. But if you look 12 or 18 months ago, this traded at 5 or 7x too. Mm-hmm. So, you know, maybe it doesn't get there. Maybe there are some issues that mean it can't get there, but there's no reason it can't be four. It can't be four and a half. It can't even be, even three would get you to a really nice price. So, Uh, I I think all of that is within play.
1: I think that sometimes analysts can overthink companies when you look at the qualitative subjective things that they like or don't like. I always jump on that concerned that you're double counting. That if you have such and such fundamentals and separately this charismatic, wonderful management of this brilliant strategy – that should be what leads to the fundamentals. Yeah. And you're double counting, especially if there's not some rapid change. And yes. This has been going on for a while. Uh, and so I just think it overthinks it to expect the, the, uh, the, the deal multiples to be that different. Perfect, perfect. So why don't we uh, wrap that
0: up sure. and why don't we move to the utility space? And I think why we're going there is – Great Plains, ticker GXP, is buying Westar, ticker WR. And for most of the country, this isn't going to mean anything. But this is a $12 billion uh, buyout. And for people who live in Kansas and Missouri, these are your utility providers. So it means a lot to you.
1: Uh, If you're flying to Aspen... Uh, halfway over, there's these big square states, and they mostly have corn. Uh, and uh, historically, they've had square fields more recently. They look like they're big circles. I think it's some sort of irrigation. I don't know specifically, but uh, they have uh, power, uh, yeah, recently. There's actually still a rural electrification bureau that I think is. I think they should kind of high-five and declare victory before dealing, but they do have uh, electrical power. And uh, my dad's from the Midwest. So he's going to kill me about this. <laughs> he, Chris is making fun of people who
0: live on the west, co- on the west and east coast here and think but, the <laughs> middle of the country is nothing. Uh, Go ahead.
1: Uh, but uh, it, it, they um, have uh, a deal. Uh, so Great Plains is buying Westar. Westar used to be known, and this is not something that they don't have on their website or their building anymore. But mm-hmm. Their motto it used to be known in, informally as the Enron of
0: Kansas. And then Enron went bankrupt and no one wanted to be known as <laughs> it's, that anymore. It's,
1: it's not, I don't know that if it ever was a great thing to be known as, but it, but it is no longer called that. Uh, great Plains is buying it. It is a, a big deal, a $12 billion uh, deal. Uh, there is a lot of uh, debt involved. Uh, mm-hmm. Goldman is financing uh, uh much of it uh, it is a st- it has a strategic rationale when I look at uh, two things I like to think about community bank deals and utility deals it's helpful frequently when they're contiguous mm-hmm. uh, footprints when there's actually a reason why you can put them together uh, cost savings uh, trucks can go back and forth the the, the footprint can uh, fit together uh, uh, certainly uh, corporate savings and political relevance for getting through the regulatory process. And in
0: this case it, they it literally couldn't be closer together. These companies actually co-own three or four power plants that they run together. So it's literally saying hey you own 50%, we own 50%, we'll just make it 100% in this case. But I think there's two things we want to talk about. This deal was kind of, you know, they're arguing there's efficiencies and there clearly are cost efficiencies there. But it's at a very rich multiple, 12x EBITDA. And I think one of the key drivers of this deal is investors are desperate to get investment-grade debt. Investment-grade debt's trading at very low rates. So they can take kind of $8 billion of financing for a $12 billion debt and still have a very accretive deal.
1: You know, it's, it's tax-benefited. It is at a, a, a time when that, uh, that makes sense. Um, one of the issues they're going to have to deal with here it is kind of a bonanza for people like me who uh, enjoy following regulatory rules Mm -hmm. Uh, the regulators get to see all the same information the investors see and the same information that goes along in the debt deal and they simply ask well, if it's good enough for you to put all this debt on, why isn't it good enough for my ratepayers to get this big benefit for? Exactly. So there's this kind of paradox that I think, uh, let me see if I can describe it the right way. On the way heading into regulatory reviews, there's a disequilibrium. Yep. And on the way getting it done, there is a re-equilibrium. The disequilibrium is if it looks really smooth and I'm a regulator, I might as well start to raise hell. Exactly. Uh, once I've raised hell and it looks like I'm busting everything up, then it makes sense to actually go back and get the deal done. You need to mug efficiently. So if you
0: think of a a regulated utility, what they do is they charge customers $100 per month for electricity. And these guys are going to come in and say, hey, by merging, we get all these cross savings and we're going to create all this value for shareholders. And regulators can come in and say... Why should that go to shareholders? Why shouldn't that go to my customers? Why shouldn't you charge them $90 per month instead of $100? And I think the reason we're talking about this here is right now, uh, WR shares trade for $56. It's a $60 deal. It'll close next year, hopefully. So there's a 7% spread. But we've seen recently that regulators will raise hell, and spreads can blow out. So we're kind of talking this about this as a prospective opportunity. I Go ahead. think So
1: you know the IRR kind of it comes to almost ten percent when you say you get 38 cents a quarter of dividends mm-hmm. next year. They're allowed to bump it to forty cents a quarter, and you get a stub dividend right at the end of closing, which actually just kind of helps tweak it a little bit. Um, I uh, if you held a gun to my head and said own it or short it here, close your eyes, sail around the world, and see what happens by the day the deal closes, mm-hmm. I would say I'm glad I don't have to make that decision, but I'd say it's probably an okay investment here, yeah. but I think the opportunity and having flexibility for the opportunity if it gets really hairy superficially in the process is a much better opportunity. We
0: two. I don't think we talked about them on the podcast, but two that happened earlier this year were Clico and Pepco, mm-hmm. and to put it into round numbers, both of them the, the deals were going to close at 55, shares were trading at 53, regulators made a stink literally the day before the deals were going to close, and they went kind of to 45, and then regulators came around, got a li- got an extra nickel or two from the companies, and shares closed. So you could have invested at 53 and been very happy when it went to 55, but you'd have been even happier if you waited till it hit 45, bought there, and then went to 55, and we think that could happen here.
1: One of the tricky things to do here is to do the work. But not to get the exposure, yeah. So you can be yeah. very flexible and dynamic with sizing and exposure later, so you're not starting near the end when the great opportunity comes, as it really might, uh, here. So it's, it's certainly worth keeping an eye on. And, and let me just throw out, if there's time, one other oh, aspect 15 of, seconds. Go ahead, I can do it in 15 seconds, yeah, which is a lot of people who invest in utilities have relative, uh, uh, uh valuation standards, and when these deals take a very long time, if the downsides become less and less, if the whole space does extremely Mm -hmm. well these spreads actually can stay wide and end up with a true arbitrage from time to time in utility deals.
0: Perfect. All right, so that's all the time we have for today. Before we hit our disclosures, just a quick reminder, if you like this podcast, please be sure to follow and rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, or Audio Boom. If you have any feedback for us, please feel free to email it to us at podcast at rangelycapital.com. I said this yesterday, and we got two spam emails to podcast at rangelycapital.com. I'm kind of honored. I'm honored that the spammers are listening to us, but we'd like to hear to our real listeners as well. So, uh... Chris, disclosures. I don't have any. I think you are along Blocks and uh, Westar. Is that right?
1: Uh, A little bit, yes. Okay,
0: perfect. So those are disclosures, and we will talk to you guys next week.